I think that's really important in terms of language and terminology. I often hear people labeling individuals as either resilient, you know, resilient athletes or resi- yeah. you know, resilient individuals. And I, I often talk about resilience on a continuum where you can have higher or lower levels of resilience depending on context and depending on time. Um, and I think if we move away, if, if we if we continue using that label of resilient, it kind of um, implies that there's nothing you can do about your resilience levels. Um, whereas, again, we know that actually we need to think about resilience as a, as a capacity that that needs to be developed, trained and practiced in the same way that you might think about your, you know, your technical and, your, you know, your your physical skills. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile and we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Today we're diving deep into a topic that's not just timely but it's also timeless, resilience. Our guest is Mustafa Saka, an expert in the psychology of resilience, particularly in the context of sports and high-performance environments. Now, Mustafa's work has been pivotal in helping us understand what resilience is and perhaps just as importantly, what it isn't. So whether you're an athlete or a coach or anyone striving for excellence, understanding the nuances of resilience can be a real game changer. In today's conversation, we'll explore the psychological elements that contribute to resilience, how these factors may vary among different roles within a sports setting, and the strategies that can be employed to build both individual and team resilience. We'll also discuss the role of environment, the importance of balancing support and challenge, and the future frontiers of resilience research. So if you're interested in building a more resilient mindset, either for yourself or with your team, this episode is packed full of insights that you won't want to miss. Let's get into the conversation. Hey, Mus, good to see you. How are things? You all right? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, 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 good. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's been long overdue, actually. I've been meaning to get you on for for ages, so so bad me. Um, and I'm so keen to get into your specialist topic around resilience, how we develop ourselves, how we look after ourselves, 
both individually and team as well. So um, I'm really keen to get into that. And I'm conscious that that potentially we should probably start with some definitions. I'm, I'm as much inspired by the work, but also very clear that this has become quite a crowded space where everyone's barking about the same concept fundamentally, but with different meanings, different spin. Um, so rather than go straight to the definition, could I just ask you to tell me a little bit about your background and then maybe you could sort of help me with leading into how you got into the area to start off with. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm an associate professor in sport and performance psychology at Nottingham Trent University. Um, do a lot of research around um, the psychology of performance excellence in sport, but also in other domains such as business. Um, particular interest around uh, resilience, as you mentioned, at both the individual level, the team level and the organisational level, um, but also starting to do some work in the areas of psychological safety and mental health as well. Um, I guess something that I'm very passionate about is not just doing research for the sake of doing research, but actually doing research that can actually have an impact in practice. So as well as doing the research, I I work with teams and organizations around developing cultures and environments to develop resilience. So I guess that's kind of a bit of a a bio around myself. Mm. I guess how I got into the area, probably a couple of personal stories were um, I went to a very high achieving boys school um, back in North London, where I grew up. And it was a school where there was a kind of an unwritten rule and expectation to do traditional subjects such as law, business, economics, medicine, for example. Um, and I was in a peer group where who were doing those traditional subjects, aiming for things like you know Oxford and Cambridge. But it really wasn't for me. But I actually succumbed to that peer pressure, I would say. It wasn't actually to do with parental expectations. It was actually more peer and school expectations. And... I ended up applying to law school, but didn't actually get into any law schools. Uh, the thought of even doing studying something sport related was completely unheard of. So I would say actually my resilience levels in that context where I succumbed to that peer pressure wasn't particularly brilliant. But where I kind of turned that around was um, I had to end up taking a gap year between um, school and university. I ended up working for PricewaterhouseCoopers um, as a tax consultant on their gap year scheme. And I was offered a job at the end of, of my time there. And that was a real kind of moment in myself around thinking, do I take a job which is earning me a very, very good salary at the age of you know 21? Or do I pursue postgraduate study in sports psychology um, and actually pursue something that I'm really, really passionate about? Um, so I think that definitely started my journey really into sports psychology. And then I guess from a sporting point of view, um, I was technically and tactically a very good young cricketer on the brink of kind of county standard um, and above. So I was a leg spin bowler and I was able to do things in training brilliantly Right. But I just wasn't able to convert that into competition. Um, and I, I struggled particularly with coach feedback, particularly when the feedback became very, very technical and very, very strategical, particularly at that age of 13, 14, where you just want to be playing for fun. Mm -hmm. And when coaches got into some of that technical level of detail, I really, really struggled to take that feedback. 
from a cricketing sense, my my dad's expectations, I really struggled with that because he wanted to really pursue, you know, get me to pursue playing cricket, probably living his dream through me a little bit, um, but struggled with that a little bit. And then, as I mentioned, yeah, I was brilliant in training, but I just couldn't convert that into competition. I still remember a time where I think it was county trials, my first over, I, I think I bowled three, you know, beforehand I was able to bowl it on the spot every single time turn the ball a huge amount but in in my first over I think in trials I think I bowled three or four full tosses um I was then taken off and yeah you know uh wasn't able to then kind of pursue you know kind of going to the elite elite side of things but it, it just got me really interested in terms of why is it and I guess that's what got me into the area of resilience is why is it that some individuals are able to withstand the pressures of of high level sport and achieve their peak performances whereas others like myself succumb to those demands and underperformed mm-hmm. um and yeah i guess that kind of personal journey around that uh really kind of instigated my i guess journey into sports psychology but then obviously uh then studying i guess resilience a little bit more specifically so you've had you've had quite a an interesting background there where there's there's potentially a sort of conformity pressure to to go down a certain route to 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 wear the suit to to get the good salary perhaps rather than and this is me being disingenuous to those professions but follow your passions do something interesting <laughs> or or do, do just follow your interests in that sense of and that that spark of following what you're interested in is then, I guess, fueled a little bit by this this sense of difference of how how am I not being able to do that? My my version of that question, which I think a lot of performance science staff have got where, that, that started them on the path, was why am I not good? <laughs> it's it wasn't sort of. Why can't I do it in performance? I was I was getting everything out in performance. It just wasn't very good. Um, it was it was it was good enough at the time, but it wasn't great. Um, so you've had a bit of a bit of a spark into uh, and a drive to to start to explore that area, and then honing in specifically about s- succumbing succumbing to those pressures. Um, and is does that does that build into the kind of resilience area in terms of what what that sh- follows on from the topics you're interested in. Yeah, I, I think when I guess when we're talking about resilience or whenever I describe it, I talk about it as being able to maintain functioning when under pressure. Um, and I think from my own experiences, there have been some occasions where yes, I've been able to. I guess when we're talking about functioning, I guess in a sporting sense, we're not. We're talking, yes, about performance, but we're also talking about well-being. So the ability to maintain performance and well-being when under pressure. And I think, yeah, I could definitely think of some occasions where in some contexts I've been able to do that really, really well. I've been able to maintain my performance and well-being under certain pressurized conditions. Um, but certainly in my sporting experiences, doing that under high-level competition, um, something that I probably if I think about back to it maybe didn't have enough practice in training you know um simulating those kind of competition demands um and also obviously when I when I was competing 14 15 so that was about 20 odd years ago 
you know, sports psychology really still was in its kind of infancy and um, even coach education around sports psychology. I think, you know, if, if my coaches were better placed to think about how after that particular county trial where I didn't perform particularly well, what could they do to work to help me in terms of their feedback, the environment that they were creating? Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting that I would have gone on to then being an elite level cricketer, but I would have definitely yeah, had a probably a more enjoyable experience and maybe even tried it out and and, and learned from some of those kind of initial, uh, more challenging experiences. Um, yeah. And so could you just clarify that, that definition then? Um, and, and also the, any valid variations of that? Um, I suppose this is the classic physics definition of resilience, which is that almost like a bouncing ball, isn't it? That that it will deform and then it will it will have some sort of bounce back and reform. And I suppose li- taking that literally for us as people, that's going to translate as, well, you're going to deliver and then we need you to bounce back and deliver again. Um, there's, um, there's a sort of a, a temporal time-based phase to it as opposed to, no, you're going to perform and perform well and you're going to be happy, which is what I'm getting from your definition. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about the definition or I guess where some of the debate and um, discussion is around is actually the word maintenance. Right. So of, often when we're thinking about resilience, there is a, a debate around is it is it that bounce back where you actually might succumb to those demands your functioning might actually dip and deteriorate before then returning to, I guess, baseline levels? Or is resilience about actually maintaining that functioning where you might have small kind of um, small dips, but not kind of dramatic dips where you have my natural dips and that's the maintenance. Um, The other suggestion around resilience, but for me, this is actually where it gets into thriving um, there's a, a whole body of work around thriving, which is actually not just about maintaining functioning, but actually enhancing or having an enhanced level of functioning following some sort of some sort of pressure or adversity. But ge- generally speaking, when we're talking about resilience, we are talking about the maintenance off. But there is some discussion about actually um, sometimes we make the distinction between what we call rebound resilience. Okay. Which is that bounce back, as you kind of suggested, or what we might call robust resilience, which is that kind of maintenance. So if I if I fly with a couple of examples, it would be the long jumper having maybe two no jumps. They've hit the hit the plasticine twice in succession. And if they don't nail the next one, then then they're out. They're out of the competition. They don't go through to the next phase. And so maintenance in that situation is that actually you're under increasing or growing pressure that's starting to escalate for you. The jump's still a jump, but but ultimately it's got some greater importance attached to it. Um, but you've just got to maintain your jumping ability. Isn't There's no, no sense of you have to do something special, but there's there's the you you just need to do what you need to do despite everyone watching you despite you having this inner monologue about worry and I'm not going to do it that's the sort of example that I'm sort of thinking of hearing your maintenance definition 
Yeah, I think that's definitely an example of yeah what we would probably term that that robust resilience, so that ability to to maintain functioning. I think that's a good yeah good example of that. And so the that sort of toughness and impenetrable sort of look, I'm going to be tough in this situation that defends against that stressor. Um, that's become almost like a cliched version of resilience as far as I can see that we're all talking about being resilient and there's resilience training in primary schools and all these sorts of things that, that has, that's created this multi-million pound industry as much as anything. Um, and so what's your interpretation of where the research is at, what we know versus where the marketing is at? I think that's a really good question. Resilience has, you, you mentioned their toughness. I'm not going to get into the debate around the difference between kind of resilience and what you might call kind of mental toughness. Um, but I think resilience has become a buzzword. And as you mentioned there, in education, in business and in sport, I guess the danger of resilience being a bit of a buzzword is that the word resilience has been lost in translation, definitely. Um, I guess if I were to identify five, four or five kind of what I would Called myths and misconceptions. Uh, we, we've written we've written a, a piece around a, a book chapter. There's a really good book out there called The Myths of. I, I think you had Amy and um, and Jen on. We did um, around yeah. Uh, yeah there it is sports coaching, and we we wrote a chapter in that particular book around uh, some of the myths and misconceptions of resilience and high performance sports. So I guess if I would go through those, and maybe we can we can then start to unpick some of those. Um, firstly, resilience is not a fixed trait. Um, resilience is a dynamic process. Resilience is a skill or capacity that is just not automatically developed. It needs to be intentionally cultivated by design. Resilience is not about how we endure. It's about how we recharge. Resilience is not solely individual. It's relational and environmental. And resilience is not about the absence or suppression of emotion. Resilience is actually about our thought and emotional awareness. Um, so I think certainly in terms of some of the media stuff that you might see or um, some of the, yeah, the lay person understanding around resilience, that's probably the bits around it being a fixed trait, about it being about endurance, about, it, about, about showing no emotion. That's probably where some of the things have come from that we've tried to to tackle and address in terms of some of our, our kind of our work. Okay. So there's loads there. Um, maybe I just pick up on that last one, that absence of emotion. That's quite interesting in the sense that the, if, if I fly with that, that cliched version, it's just put on your, your big boy, big girl pants and get on with it, tough it out. Um, that, that sense when actually understanding the emotion Sounds like it might be part of of kind of developing a resourcefulness for yourself. Yeah, th those who demonstrate resilience, we know from the research that those who demonstrate resilience actually face a lot of negative emotions. So feelings of shame, guilt, embarrassment, anger. And it's not that they don't experience those emotions, they're just better able to actually firstly accept those emotions and then take the time to process and manage those emotions. Um, so as you said, that that idea of just getting on with it, stiff upper lip, 
um that's not what resilience is about resilience is actually taking the time to to be self-aware of what you're thinking and you're feeling and particularly if those thoughts and feelings are unhelpful it's then taking the time to to to, to process and, and manage uh, manage that okay so that hints to this idea that it's not necessarily something that you are born with but actually you can cultivate it that and so what are your tips there that that and and maybe i need to distinguish a couple of things here about the sort of daily i think you call them in your research daily hassles um and big events that can be quite disturbing can um, be quite stressful that you you will need to sort of dig yourself back out from maybe if we can just do some clarification about that but also then maybe if you could suggest okay there's a skill and an intentional approach to understanding what you've experienced that can develop future resilience yeah and i think that's really important in terms of language and terminology i often hear people labeling individuals as either resilient you know resilient athletes or resi- yeah. you know resilient individuals and i i often talk about resilience on a continuum where you can have higher or lower levels of resilience depending on context and depending on time um and i think if we move away if if we if we continue using that label of resilient it kind of um, implies that there's nothing you can do about your resilience levels um whereas again we know that actually we need to think about resilience as a as a capacity that that needs to be developed trained and practiced in the same way that you might think about your you know your technical and your you know your your physical skills um I guess about how you go about developing resilience um and as you mentioned it does depend on context so how you might develop resilience in relation to daily hassles might be very different to how you develop resilience in, in relation to more kind of significant uh significant life events we've developed um what we call mental fortitude training resilience training a, a bit of a framework which is very very practical uh, and it focuses on three areas it focuses on personal qualities which are your kind of psychological skills psychological characteristics it focuses on um what we call a challenge mindset uh which is specifically around helping individuals to view pressure as an opportunity rather than viewing pressure as a threat and then the third aspect of the the framework is focusing on creating what we call a facilitative environment um which is um a balance between um social agents or whether that's coaches parents people in the organization etc having that balance between kind of an environment where there is high challenge and high support so in in terms of the development of resilience we're not I'm not we're not suggesting that this is a um a one size fits all where actually you know um this is the only approach to developing resilience but certainly we found it to be a useful framework certainly in the sporting kind of context. Could we go through a couple of those? Yes. Um and I'm I'm almost anticipating those personal qualities the whether that's a personality characteristic or a trait um whether that's something that kind of predisposes you to a degree of resilience. I'm also conscious that if you might not have the perfect blend, you can still develop it by the sounds of it. 
Um, could, could you could you talk a little bit about some of those personal qualities that might support a, a more resilient approach? Yeah, sure. So um, this is actually based on some of the research that we did looking at resilience in Olympic champions. Um, and we identified five, again, these aren't necessarily the five, but we, we identified, I guess, five clusters of psychological factors that we knew or we found to underpin resilience in, in these athletes. So these were motivation, confidence, um, focus, having a positive personality, and um, what we termed perceived social support. Um, so, yeah, those were the five, I guess, clusters of psychological factors that we identified as, as, as kind of underpinning uh, the resilience performance relationship. That's interesting. That you you keep giving me these these lists, Mus. I'm going to be diving deeper and deeper. So I've gone the first five, and then I've gone into one of those, and you've given me three, and then we're going to go um, we're going to go even further. This is going to be an endless conversation. <laughs> um, okay, let me let me do let me try not to go into that too much then. But I want to come back to those fortitude com uh, comments. So personal qualities, challenge mindset, facilitative environment. Yeah. But picking up on those personal qualities, motivation, confidence, that sounds focus, that sounds, you know, that that I get that. Um, being in those sorts of environments with Olympic champions, yeah, that there there is a strong sense of that immediately. The one thing that um I'm gonna quiz you on there is around per positive personality. I I was <laughs> When, when I first started working in this world, I was actually quite surprised how it wasn't the sort of gung-ho, yeah, we're going to do it, we're going to smash it every day. It was actually a lot of worry, a lot of concern. But probably what I heard differently from Olympic champions, Olympians, was, okay, these are my concerns, so what am I going to do about it? There was a sense of agency that that's that I'm going to sit with that worry and that concern and those risks, and and be that that um, that that person who's feeling inhibited by that, but then activating themselves to actually do something about it. Yeah, and and I, and I, I think actually the the term positive personality has a certain connotation to okay. that. It, it's not, it's not suggesting that these are, you know, or these Olympic champions that we talked to, they, they weren't necessarily talking about being extroverted or being kind of unduly optimistic. In fact, they, they, they right. use the term actually realistic optimism, which I thought was quite a nice way of kind of approaching it is that yes, there is an element of, of looking for, ways that things can be done but with an element of realism attached to that um and also it wasn't just about extroversion we talked to a lot of olympic champions where actually mm. actually having that introversion <clears throat> that ability to reflect actually was a really important part of their of their kind of personality i think one particular trait we, we could we could discuss about whether it's a trait or something that can be developed um that they talked about was this ability to be proactive and we we kind of couch that within within this idea of having a positive personality is is actually seeking initiative, looking for things to change. And I, I I would argue this is really important from a resilience point of view that rather than thinking about resilience as just reacting when things are going wrong, 
putting plans and strategies in place before they actually happen. Um, and a lot of the things that were talked about was actually being, you know, in terms of a personality disposition about being very, very proactive, seeking out initiatives, seeking out change before change was actually required. Um, that that kind of constituted part of having a positive personality. So I'm hearing authentic confidence there. Yeah. It's not a gung-ho, if you believe it, you can achieve it type of nonsense. It's grounded. There's belief because of evidence, that realistic evidence. But it's also grounded in that you've done the work, you've prepared. Uh, at the very least, it might not be you've prepared for the incident that has kicked off or the competitor who is on fire that you're worried now about but but you you can at least say well I've done what I can you've got I've I've applied myself and sufficiently rigorously in this arena to to actually be confident yeah so I think I think there's quite a little bit of nuance uh, you know in similar to the kind of the positive personality um there's nuance around some of the other psychological characteristics and qualities so for example in relation to motivation um it's not necessarily about high levels of motivation uh but actually about optimizing motivation so a lot of the athletes that we spoke to talked about yes being extrinsically motivated in terms of wanting to win medals but actually making sure that that was supported by really strong in intrinsic motivations in terms of the value the learning the fun that kind of came on from that um similarly with confidence it wasn't necessarily about always maintaining high levels of confidence but actually being able to have stable levels of confidence particularly when athletes went through difficult or challenging situations um and then probably the last one which i think is really interesting is that ability to maintain focus a lot of the 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 athletes that we spoke to said it wasn't just about being able to switch on when required but also being able to switch off and for me that goes back to the myth that we talked earlier on about resilience of being about recharging not just about enduring um and and the the aspect of switching on switching off being a really really crucial part of that process so I guess when you when you mm. when you see them as labels in terms of motivation, confidence, and focus, you think, yeah, those seem quite intuitively make sense. But when you start to dig a little bit deeper, you start to see where some of the nuances kind of come in. Okay, that, that's that's fascinating in itself, in that that just the the subtleties of the, the of interpretation there. Um, can I pick up on that last point about social support and? Um, one of my favorite examples of this is when you sort of support an athlete or, or, or somebody who's going into the arena, sometimes a, a lead coach that I'm, I'm working with, and, they, and they, they go into the arena and I think, all right, my job's done. You know, I can watch them. And I get a text like a few minutes before they're about to perform. Um, and I go, oh, that's interesting. They need a bit of extra support. Or perhaps that little bit of confirmation that everything's going to be okay. Um, could you just tell a little bit about the, the social support and the importance of that? And if uh, we know that we've got some parents and and coach coaches that that tune into the podcast, and if there's any top tips about how you can support people uh, in the best way? Yeah. So in, in terms of 
resilience and, and social support, I think it goes also back to one of the myths that we talked about earlier about resilience not being solely individual, but also resilience being relational. Um, and we need to, kind of, I guess, appreciate that resilience and social support are very much interlinked with one another. It's not necessarily about the support itself, but it's actually about the perception of that support that is actually more important from a resilience point of view. Um, because often we might think that we're giving athletes, or giving individuals lots and lots of support. But if they don't think that that support is available to them, it's the perception of their support that is more important than the actual support itself. Right. Okay, so are there any specific things that you'd want to see? If you were if you were thinking about athlete, coach, environment, what are the sorts of things from a social support point of view that you'd be wanting to see or hear um, appreciating your last point about the perception? But are there any key phrases or are there any, is it the manner in which support tends to enhance how it's received? Yeah, I think obviously support comes in. I think the one thing to appreciate is that support comes in many different forms. Um, so I think it's worth finding out from athletes what type of support is needed from them, but also which people are best able to give them that particular type of support. So an exercise that I often do actually with working with athletes is listing what kind of support is important. So informational support could be technical support financial support emotional support um what types of support are important and matching the person who they think is best able to provide that particular type of support from a, from a social support point of view we talk about that as the ma matching hypothesis okay so so it's not so much a, a playbook of ways in which you could could develop somebody it's actually asking them um what's best um how can i best support you and working with that yeah and i think that would help increase the um perception that support is available to them both in terms of the types of support but also help them to reflect on which people they should go to for that particular type of support because often an athlete, let's say, might go to someone for a particular type of support and then think, actually, I'm not getting support. And it's just that they've gone to the wrong person for that particular type of support. Right. So I think I think ra raising that awareness around which people are best placed from their perspective around giving the different types. So that, that could be coach, that could be parents, that could be teammates. But even specify, even for example, teammates specifying which individuals within their team, even within parents, if they've got a mum and a dad, which types of support will the mum give? Which types of support will the dad give that the athlete will kind of uh, receive or kind of be most conducive to? So I think it's it's really being specific with that reflection around what type of support and what which people are best placed to give that individual that type of support. I'm conscious as we're talking through this and these personal qualities and the fortitude aspects, and I'm conscious that we're framing a lot of this around the athlete, which is fair because they're the ones that go out and perform. But 
at least they've got an outlet. You know, it's like you're 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 going to go and play. You're going to burn some energy. As supporters, leaders, coaches, parents, the 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 loved ones that are there to support, they're they're sitting down with the heart rate going, watching somebody perform. I suppose there's, you know, my question is is about just how applicable this type of research and, th- and thought process is to to those who are in support of an athlete too. Yeah, and and to be honest with you, I, I know we, we might get to this later on the line is around where kind of, for example, resilience research might kind of go to. I think ultimately at the moment, <clears throat> the majority of the research has focused on athletes themselves. Um, but I think there is a growing body of work, for example, looking at coach resilience. Uh, Jolan Kieglis, for example, from the Netherlands has done a lot of really good work around that space. We've We've started a program of research looking at parental resilience. Um, so resilience in parents. Um, so I, I think you're definitely right that I, I think this 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 research definitely does apply to other other kind of um, people in the in the kind of the performance environment. But I think we we definitely need more research in in those kind of spaces to to understand that resilience is just not relevant to athletes. It's relevant to a whole whole variety of individuals, leaders, coaches, parents, support staff as part of that process as well. I think if I was to go back in time, I would probably spend more focus understanding who the the partner is, if there is one, and what role they play. Um, we think about parents, but I suppose the parental role starts to reduce as a partner emerges, and and probably understanding how they best could be supportive of the performer in the future. Um, all right, interesting. Right, let's go back a little step then. So fortitude, personal qualities, we've given that one a bit of a chat. Challenge mindset, um, seeing pressure as an opportunity. Talk me through that. Yeah, and I'm sure, Steve, you've, you've heard this phrase. It is a phrase that gets bounded about a little bit. So we've got to be a little bit careful. But you hear, often hear elite athletes, and particularly really high-level elite athletes, talking about pressure being a privilege. Um, so it's very much that kind of... Um, mindset where you're viewing pressure as an opportunity to develop to show your potential to grow as an individual rather than viewing pressure as a threat to your own performance and well-being and part of the challenge mindset is about recognizing that although you can't control the situation you can't control the event or the circumstance. You can control how you react and respond. Um, and this is very much based around um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or rational emotive behavior therapy, uh, REBT, which is about helping people to recognize that our thoughts influence how we feel and behave. Um, it's not the event itself that if influences how we feel and behave, it's our thoughts that influence how we how we feel and, and act. Um, and helping people to, I guess, bet, become smarter. It's not. I, I often make the point that it's not about positive thinking. It's, it's not about changing negative thoughts into positive thoughts, but it's about recognizing that there is an alternative way to view a situation and reframing that situation from a slightly different angle and perspective. That that feels like a piece of knowledge that can actually be a relief for people in understanding that I, I get to have control. I've got a little bit more agency. 
as a consequence of understanding that these thoughts are going to fly in at different angles, but potentially I can change the record, I can change the the narrative, and that in itself will have an effect on emotion, that will affect my behaviours. And I think, yeah, it really helps to put the, I guess, the account, not accountability might not be the right word, actually, the freedom, um, the control back to the individual that, yes, you know, you although you can't control actually what you're going to necessarily experience, you can control your reactions and responses to that. And it helps to instill that, yeah, <clears throat> level of kind of responsibility, accountability. Um, I guess one specific example of that, and it kind of links a little bit back to the to the motivation part is, the way that pressure is viewed, uh, particularly at kind of high level elite sport, is I often I, interesting for me the distinction between seeing something as a sacrifice being, versus seeing something as a choice. And that for me is an example of maybe what you might call a challenge mindset, where you might see something as a choice. You know, as an elite athlete, it is your choice where you're going to be work. You know, training three, four times a week. Sometimes training during and competing during unsociable hours. Seeing that as a choice rather than seeing that as a sacrifice, where, for example, you don't get the same opportunities to interact with families and friends. So, for me, that that's where language becomes really, really important. Is is how do you frame these situations? Do you see something as a choice? Do you see it as a sacrifice? And how do you kind of internalize that within yourself? So it's just one specific example, really, in relation to that. Yeah, I like that. And and one of the coaching phrases I I use, I can't remember where I stole it from, actually, but it was when, when I hear people saying, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and, and try and reframing that to, I get to. Um, so there's a real subtlety to the perspective of uh, the that I'm, I'm burdened with this awful stress and experience, or I get to be somebody who does sport for a living. You know, those sorts of uh, gratitude and all uh, perspectives. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think, Steve, sorry to interrupt, um, just to make you, make you and the audience aware is actually the challenge mindset, CBT, REBT, um, the U.S. Army have used some of these skills. Uh, they've spent over 100 million U.S. dollars on building soldiers' resilience. And um, they've got seven, you know, I, I'm always a bit hesitant to recommend books because there's a lot of resilience help books out there which aren't very scientific. But the, the Army one is a really good balance between being evidence-based and very, very practical. And a lot of the skills that they develop um, or they talk about are actually based around this idea of a challenge mindset. So... There are actually skills and strategies and techniques that individuals can use to reframe how pressure is viewed. And, and ultimately, the foundation of that is what they call learning your ABCs, which is about appreciating that we have an activating event, which is the A. We have beliefs and thoughts about that acting event, which is the B. And then we've got consequences, which are our feelings and behaviors. Um, and we we have to recognize that we go through a process of A, B, and C rather than going straight from A to C. Um, and then on the back of that skill, there are many other skills that kind of go into that in a little bit more detail. So once you're aware, for example, that your beliefs influence how you feel and behave, you can then start to explore your beliefs a little bit more in detail. So some of the things that I do with athletes and coaches, actually, is... Um, 
exploring some of their thinking traps. So they're kind of unhelpful patterns of thinking that we're all susceptible to as individuals. So that could be mind reading, that could be jumping to conclusions, that could be um, magnifying the negatives and minimizing the positives. These are all kind of examples of thinking traps. So I, I guess I, the reason I highlight that is actually the challenge mindset and this idea of reframing is a skill that you know can be taught. There are strategies, et cetera, that can be learned to develop that challenge mindset. Right. Okay. Very nice. And um, we'll grab the name of the book and put the that link into the notes afterwards, if that's okay, because that sounds that sounds particularly useful. And but also that military perspective is quite unique from the point of view that we're not talking about jumping into a sandpit or throwing a spear here. We're talking about life and death consequences of of feeling a real genuine threatening pressure but preparing for that beforehand and what to do in the heat at the moment yeah yeah and i think that the context definitely is different and we might come to it at the end but the one thing i really like about that the u.s army example is they had real it wasn't just the fact that they put a lot of money behind the program but there was all the way uh buying from congress to senior management all the way down to soldiers and then and resilience development it was integrated as part of the community with veterans and and you know with with families so i think the reason i like using that example is that for me it's an example where resilience development it isn't just a tick tick box exercise but it's actually a sustained genuine initiative for sustained change over a period of time um but yeah, we might come back to that. Yeah. Come back to that later. Well, I don't know whether this is a dovetail from that when you're talking about all systems being educated and being thoughtful and practiced and skilled at developing certain characteristics in a certain environment. That last that last point that you talked about being a facilitative environment. Now, this is probably one of my favorite frameworks. I think you're going to go on to, um, but. Does this does this lead us into sort of the 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 place that you operate in? What's it feel like? How's it going to encourage you? How's it going to stretch you as people? Uh, that environmental factor that can influence how you respond, but also how the team responds. Yeah, and and I think it goes back to the myth that you know resilience is not solely individual. It is it is environmental, and basically the environmental conditions that are created can either actually increase or enhance someone's resilience or can potentially undermine their resilience and a quote that i often um use it's not resilience specific but i think it has lots of relevant is that you know when a flower doesn't bloom you fix the environment in which it grows not the flower um, and often when we think about resilience development we focus on the flower we focus on the individual we don't focus around the plant food the sunlight the watering etc so yes um for me, most of my actual, I would say, consultancy or kind of more practical applied work is actually working with coaches, working with leaders to think about the environment that they're creating for their for their athletes. Um, for me, a very, very important part of the, the three part framework for sure. Okay, so so talk me through how you foster that. Um, what are the things that you're looking for to get to the point of facilitative environment? Yeah, so I think probably one step back from that is when, when we kind of conceptualize the environment, the, the two kind of things that we talk about there are challenge and support. 
So I guess when we're talking about the, the, the facilitative environment, we're talking about an environment where there is both high challenge and high support. Um, and then I guess we can then have a bit of a discussion and conversation about, okay, what does that actually look like then in practice? So for me, a, a facilitative environment is an environment where um, feedback, as an example, is a two-way conversation between athlete, coach, and a variety of other individuals. And actually, athletes are craving that constructive feedback. Feedback's not just a one-way process. Um, individuals in a facilitative environment actually have ownership around their goals. Goals is not something that is, again, dictated by someone, but actually it's a it's a, a two-way uh, piece. Um Individuals are are looking to develop themselves and looking to seek out challenges. You know, so that that for me is where there's a, a co conversation there around how how does a coach and an individual come together to think about what are some of the challenges that that individual needs to then subsequently develop their performance and to develop their resilience kind of to subsequent <laughs> challenges. And I think other aspects around. Um, and certainly a facilitative environment is an environment where there is definitely aspects around psychological safety. So where people are free to, to share their opinion without fear of judgment, but also free to take risks where mistakes are seen as a learning opportunity, et cetera. So yeah, a few, a few kind of generic, I guess, features or uh, qualities of what I would consider to be part of that facilitative environment. Now, if I understand the framework correctly, You've got low challenge, low support, which is stagnant, I believe. Yeah. You've got low challenge, high support, which is comfortable. And then you've got high challenge, low support, which is relentless. Unrelenting. Yeah. Unrelenting. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that, that sounds like I was sponsored by a caffeine drink, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, and then facilitative environment is... Uh, high challenge, high support. And so can I just ask you then about potentially two of those quadrants, comfortable and unrelenting. If if you've got a, a situation where people are in a comfortable environment, how are you able to move somebody up into that facilitative environment? What are the things that you would be encouraging leaders or coaches to be to, to be putting in place or saying that, that helps get them rising to the challenge yeah and i think probably before i answer that directly i think the first thing to is to recognize is that for me being in a com there's nothing wrong actually for me about being in a comfortable environment that there, there might be occasions or part of a season or, or, or part of the the timing where actually you're periodizing it in such a way where actually being in a comfortable environment where there is high support is actually needed um, I guess the only thing to be aware of is in a comfortable environment, um, you're unlikely to have high levels of performance if you're in a comfortable environment for a prolonged period of time. Um, but yeah, not notwithstanding that, I, I think ultimately in a comfortable environment, there is not enough challenge in that environment ultimately. So I guess as coaches and leaders is to think about creative ways where challenge can be incorporated but the key bit, though, is that it's not just about the challenge itself, but it's it's how it's how it's progressively adaptable, how it's developmentally appropriate, um, how it is, I guess, accelerated. So, for example, if a challenge is provided and athletes are actually able to manage those challenges well, how do you then take the time to increase that challenge even further? 
Um, and I, I think one framework or one, I, I mentioned Yolan Kiegler's work, who does a lot of stuff around coaches' resilience. He's published a really nice piece of work looking at what they've called uh, coaches' use of planned disruptions in high-performance sports. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> and those, there's some really nice practical examples there around what coaches can do in training, obviously probably most, most suitably in training, to incorporate some of those play, planned disruptions. So that could be, you know, trying to simulate re poor refereeing decision-making, um, simulating competition conditions. Um, we've done some work around training in really poor facilities that if you're, we worked with a swimming club who were in, who had brilliant facilities. And then when they trained in meets where the pools weren't so great, their athletes really, really struggled. So we we got them to train in some really poor facilities so that when they went to poorer facilities, they were better able to deal with that. So yeah, they, they came up with different classifications around how you can incorporate planned disruptions as part of that kind of training setup. So that's for me probably what needs to be, if you're in that comfortable environment, how can you notch up that challenge? I guess that the key bit is you don't move from that comfortable environment to that then that unrelenting environment. So, and, but, that, and so that direction is quite interesting because I'm going to assume that if an environment is comfortable, that I, I take your point about seasonal and periodized approach, but if it is comfortable, that, that people might be used to that and they might be happy with that. And they, they might have actually been uh, people who have fostered that and created that environment. And so how do you... What I guess there's there's a million ways in which you could do this, but what what are the sort of surefire ways of being able to up the challenge for people so that they feel um, supported, but I'm also stretched in the right way? Yeah, and and I think for me that's where challenge doesn't automatically come from coaches, leaders. I I think that's where it's a two way conversation with an athlete around from their point of view, what challenges do they think that they need to push them outside of their comfort zone or help them develop as an individual and help them develop as an athlete? So I actually see challenge as a co-construction between athlete and coach. Um, and, and, and also thinking about creative ways that can, that can be done. I think there, you know, there are things that can be done um, kind of quite creatively in quite fun ways where, it might not necessarily see that actually that challenge is being done, but actually subtly that challenge is being created in that in that kind of environment. So I think for me that the buy-in, I think you're kind of alluding to this a little bit, there needs to be buy-in from athletes that ultimately um, challenge is going to be created. There's a reason why we're doing this to ultimately to help with your performance. The Probably the one thing I would say is to make athletes aware that maybe in the short term, there might be a little bit of discomfort there might be actually their performances might dip in the short term, but the idea of providing challenge is actually more for the medium to long term um, in terms of that journey and that development. Um, so I think it's for me the rationale and justification uh, as to why that challenge is being provided, but then also a little bit of a debrief that once that challenge is provided, as a coach, as a leader, do you need to increase that challenge even further or do you need to increase and provide a little bit more support? Okay. And I suppose this is, this is growing as an area of, of, I suppose the, the hierarchical approach of I'm the coach, I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to talk to you as I want. Or I'm going to talk to you as my coach talked to me. Um, 
that monodirectional approach of of command and control type thing. I suppose this is actually unveiling a way in which we can develop people, but it is ultimately agreed. You know, if we're going to aspire for this, we've got to we've got to work out a way. We've got to come up with something between us, probably at the right age of agreement. You know, that the, the, there's a there's a sense of of uh, maturity to that. But that feels like it's it's a, a useful framework by which you can set the right tone to be able to push people and to feel as though they've got their back. Yeah, and I, and I think what, what interesting discussion that I have is whenever I speak to coaches about this framework, there's an interesting discussion about, well, if I'm being challenging, I can't be supportive. Yeah. And if I'm being supportive, I can't be challenging. And I guess what hopefully this framework kind of illustrates is that you can be challenging and supportive at the same time. And that can have an that can have a positive impact on both performance and well-being. There doesn't need to be a a kind of a sacrifice of one or or the other. Um, you know, if we go back to the definition of resilience, the ability to maintain functioning, functioning be, being both performance and well-being. The ability to maintain performance and well-being when under pressure, in my view, that that facilitative environment, challenge and support to support both performance and well-being, uh, to support both the athlete and the person, ultimately, at the end of the day. And so did we cover going from unrelenting to facilitative? in that i don't know whether we've we've actually I don't think covered we have it. No, no okay but no but I, I suppose the same sort of concepts apply don't they how do you want to be supported would be one way in which you'd take someone forward um but how would you up support from an unrelenting place my my question here is driven by probably environments where i'm pretty sure it was unrelenting and then suddenly you've got this sort of oh we back you we believe in you sort of sense of like, where's all this coming from? I, I don't believe you, uh, because it's now feeling completely sort of polar opposite to being driven, being pushed, and and perhaps being flogged a little bit. Yeah, and and I think I've, that's what I've had a lot of conversation about this unrelenting environment. I, I think for me, um, I do this as a bit of an audit exercise that I kind of list some of the characteristics in terms of what I what we found to be characteristic of an unrelenting environment so those could be for example um, a bit of a blame culture you know people looking to blame other people when high standards are not met isolation people dropping out burning out etc so I and when we have that discussion of that characteristics I then kind of ask do you notice any of these characteristics in your environments because even if you don't notice all of them if you're starting to recognize one or two of these characteristics that's for me what I would call kind of red flags you know, if you're starting to recognize some, one of the two of these characteristics, those are probably red flags, which suggest that you're moving in that unrelenting direction and probably suggest that you need to move in that kind of facilitative direction. And I have lots of conversations with coaches to say, well, you know, if I use the football kind of context as an example, you know, we, we need to provide academy context to be unrelenting because we're preparing them for the first team. I, I just don't buy it. I just I don't think there is any need at all whatsoever for individuals to be in an unrelenting environment. You can be in that high challenge, high support environment, and still, if the if if the issue is, well, performance is going to be affected. Actually, in high challenge and high uh, support, your performance is still going to be heart and center of everything. Um, 
So I think the the negative consequences of being in an under, uh, un, unrelenting environment, I guess that's where you've got a lot of the things that have come through around, you know, the winning at all costs um, cultures that are being have been talked about a little bit. Um, in my view, I, I don't think there is any need at all to be in an unrelenting environment, regardless of, of level or, or context. And in some of our pre-discussion and, and conversations, you flagged actually an important aspect of the consequences of defining resilience inaccurately. Um, could you just un unlock that there? Because that, that to me feels like you've set, a, if the academy example, you've set a goal. We want, we want to prepare people for the top league and it is unrelenting there. So therefore we have to bring it back. That's where a goal has sort of informed practice as opposed to thinking about optimizing conditions. So, um, yeah, let me go back to the question about what are the consequences of defining resilience inaccurately? Yeah, the, the example, and it links back to the unrelenting environment a little bit, is this was the example of um, British gymnastics in relation to the White Review, uh, obviously allegations of uh, mistreatment and abuse in the sport. The White Review covered many different areas, a 300-page re report. But what was really interesting was that the culture to develop resilience what Anne White concluded was the culture to develop resilience, and I'm putting resilience in inverted commas for a reason, the culture to develop resilience contributed to maltreatment and abuse in the sport. And when you dug into the report in a little bit more detail, as recent as 2020, there were coach curriculum materials that was defining resilience as the ability to suffer. And Anne White goes on to say that this la this use of language does little to move the culture on. For me, that's that that's not strong enough. I, I think defining resilience is the ability to suffer. If you're defining resilience in that way, if coaches are defining resilience in that way, it's not surprising to me that you're going to be in a situation where there's going to be really bad practices in relation to that. So hopefully that for me illustrates an example. If you're defining resilience inaccurately, you're not describing it in an evidence-based fashion. Yes, practically, but the implications of defining resilience incorrectly has massive kind of consequences in terms of coach practice, athlete expectations, et cetera, around that. Mm, okay. And can, can, can we widen this conversation a bit further in terms of the, the sense of individual resilience versus team resilience and i'm conscious that a lot we've framed a lot of this about what you put you personally experience your personal qualities whether you are up for taking on that opportunity um that, that might come with pressure um that feels like it's it's on you but what about the the bonds between people the dynamics that sit within a team that, that are perhaps a little bit harder to, to measure or capture. Um, perhaps when you go into an environment, it might be more about feel. Um, could, could you just open up this idea about team resilience for me? Yeah, sure. So I think for me, team resilience, I guess the slight <clears throat> difference between team resilience and individual resilience is that team resilience, again, through some of our research, rests fundamentally on cultivating high-quality relationships. That, that that's not that's not to suggest that those relationships are not important for individual resilience but certainly for for team resilience those that cultivation of high quality relationships becomes really really important 
we did a, a piece of research, my colleague uh, Paul Morgan, um, where we did a case study of the 2003 uh, England Rugby Union World Cup winning team. Um, and through that research, we identified, sorry, there's going to be another, another bit of a Go list. Another bullet but, list, just spoiling me with your bullet list. lists. Um, um, five kind of processes that underpin team resilience. So that was transformational leadership, shared leadership, team learning, social identity, and positive emotions. Um, but actually, majority of those, you can kind of see, you know, aspects of leadership. So transformational leadership is obviously about that that one kind of charismatic, inspirational, motivational leader who gives that sense of direction. In this particular case, this was Clive Woodward. Um, and often it's the coach, captain, etc., but from a team resilience point of view, what we also found is that it's not just about having that one individual who provides that leadership, but that ability to share that leadership throughout the team. And the reason why that's important from a resilience point of view is that helps to that helps to spread ownership and accountability. Um, I think Clive Woodward talked about having an excellent leader in a in a group of great leaders. Um, so. That's just, yeah, one example. And then obviously things like identity, you know, having a really, really distinctive social identity. Um, Owen Eastwood's done some great work around kind of sense of belonging, sense of identity. And again, that very much, that is very much built on developing those high quality relationships. So yeah, hopefully a, a you know, um, a starting point there around, yeah, where where team resilience might be slightly different to to the idea of individual resilience. Okay, so these are these are these are things that that you could almost break down into some of their component parts and work on them separately. Yeah. That can be additive or cumulative for that 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 ability for the team to be resilient. I'm just going to check there that the 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 definition of resilience is the same in terms of maintaining performance. Um, so that so is that is is that would that be correct? Yeah, I, I guess the, the the way that it might be kind of slightly different is maybe how you would define maintaining functioning. Um, performance might not just be individual performance, but it might be that kind of collective performance. Similarly with well-being, it might not just be individual well-being, but it might be um, collective well-being. And when we're talking about maintaining functioning under pressure, we're not just talking about individual stresses, but we're also talking about collective stresses that the team might might face as well. But yeah, ultimately, the the essence of the definition is is, is similar. Okay, so I'm interpreting some of these as, um, like for example, team learning, the ability to be able to reflect together, debrief together, take take a stressful event that, that perhaps didn't go well or it was or they, they've got the outcome that they wanted and then take learning out of that irrespective and um that that type of practice that can can foster a, a safer environment but also a progressive environment yeah and, and in terms of the team learning part of it is the technical academic term there is around kind of developing a shared mental model um, so ultimately, everyone is on the same wavelength there in terms of I think a lot of the time, there's a lot of individual learning that might happen. But actually, what what is that learning at that kind of collective group level? Um, the other thing around learning, which I think is really important is that, and it, it also relates to individual resilience a little bit, is it's not just about the experience itself. Uh, a quote that I often use that you you don't learn from experience, you learn from reflecting on experience. So 
I think, yeah, it's the reflection part that's probably and how you do that collectively. And then how do you ensure then that that reflection is translated into learning that that everyone on the team is on the same wavelength in terms of the next next action points, the next training, the next competition. So it's, it's building that building up that bank of knowledge collectively, I think, as part of that technical term there. Yeah, the shared shared mental model. And just just um, if I zoom out a little bit here, and you know, if you're working with different companies or teams, and you're developing these aspects, I'm going to assume to a certain extent it's needed, um, as opposed to we're just going to work on stuff for the sake of it. Um, either a gap or that there's there's improvements to to be made. Uh, have you got a sense of of when you're working with teams how much they should be focusing on on this type of uh, topic as a there are so many different areas that, that you could invest in in terms of personal development, team development. Have you got a sense of just how much modern companies are are needing to work on this? Yeah, I, I think um, a, lot of, a lot of companies, both sport organizations, business organizations, I think are having resilience at their kind of forefront in terms of development, CPD staff. I guess for me – it also depends on where they're coming from in terms of resilience. If, if if resilience development ends up just being about developing individual personal qualities, then um, I don't think that's the complete picture. I, I think resilience development in its more comprehensive sense is around thinking collectively around environment, thinking about bringing managers and coaches in. I, I talk about resilience development about being everyone's business so i think that the danger of aiming resilience development as let's say as just as athletes or just as employees in the context of business there's a really nice quote that david oliver from the nhs uses that he talks about resilience starting to become a bit of a dirty word <laughs> because resilient you know you resilient or the lack of resilience or you're not resilient enough the responsibility is aimed at the individual that you're not doing something right so you need to develop your resilience um i think we need to move away from that idea that resilience development is the sole responsibility of an individual to think about resilience development being actually the responsibility of the collective and and that's where the environment comes in, the team teams aspects of it comes in. And that's where I'm a big believer. I think senior leadership need to think about some of this stuff. So I think organizations are thinking about it. And uh, but they're my the danger for me, and I'm very vocal about this, is that it shouldn't just be a tick box exercise. It's not just about. Mustafa, can you come in and do a resilience webinar for me or a resilience workshop for me? Tick the box. We've now done resilience development for all of our employees or all of our athletes. That is not going to develop resilience in a sustainable fashion. Um, so I think, yeah, I think organizations are thinking about it, whether or not they're thinking about it in that kind of sustained fashion, in that way, which is about kind of long-term change rather than just short-term I'm still to see many organizations doing it in that way. Well, with your, with your frameworks here, there's, there's a sense that there's a continued um, lasting learning aspect to that. Um, you've hinted to a couple of areas. I mean, just finally, uh, you've hinted a couple of areas that you, you think actually the, the, 
the resilience research and support is going. You've just mentioned around that collective responsibility. We've mentioned um, parental uh, and support people. Any other areas that you think that, that there's a frontier to still be broached? I think for me, a big one, actually, Steve, is um, youth sport. Um, a lot of the findings that we're drawing upon currently are actually predominantly from adults. Um, so a lot of the questions that I get, and I hold up my hand and say, look, we are extrapolating backwards, but that's not the right thing to do is, how does resilience development work from, let's say, 8, 10? And how can you periodize that from 10 to 18? Um, so we just don't know enough about resilience in that youth development um, stage. So I think there's a lot more that needs to be done in that in that space. Um, this is a methodological issue, but I think it has also practical relevance. I think we've got to become better at exploring resilience over time. Um, ultimately, a lot of the research at the moment is, let, let's say you do a one-off interview or one-off survey-based data, and you're measuring it kind of, or you're assessing or exploring it at one time point. Um, but if we're talking about resilience as a dynamic process, we need to understand that resilience is context-specific and time-dependent. So we need to do a lot more longitudinal work, I would say, around resilience. And then probably lastly, which which I'm you know really keen to see if we can do a lot more work in this area is actually resilience across cultures. Um, this is this is the case predominantly around sports psychology. So I don't think this is resilience specific, but um, I think the way that resilience is conceptualized, the way that is developed um, between different cultures, uh, countries, race, ethnicities, for example. Um, that is definitely an area where there needs to be a lot, a lot more work in that space as well. So, yeah, probably those are the, the three in terms of the youth space, um, more, more, more kind of longitudinal work, and then also looking at it across and between different cultures. Mm, interesting. Well, I can't wait to see how that that evolves over time. Certainly, the one that's that I think is is classic that seems to be imprinting there on on kids is this fixed mindset, growth mindset, et cetera, et cetera, you know, which might have some, some hearty substance to it. The one I get asked a lot about is performance in cross-cultural teams. So it's not a case of, um, of here's how we did it in the UK. So therefore you should do it over here. Um, actually now we're hearing and seeing teams assemble from around the world because of a virtual, uh, virtual working environments. But it's now a case of we're going to have to sort of undo some of the assumed ways of working. And we're going to have to check in a little bit as to how do we want to work and challenge and support each other over time. So that's that's a fascinating one that you flagged there. Hey, look, this is this has been great. Thank you so much. Such an important area. Uh, so useful. You have you have thoroughly treated me to a bullet point list or two. And I'm sure people are going to be making loads of notes as they listen to this once or twice and massively topical about us trying to find ways in which we could improve the way that we're developing youngsters through sport, people through sport um, and the next generation. So Mas, thank you so much for your time. No, no worries at all. I hope, I hope uh, people found it useful. Great.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. And we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.